0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, if you are new or you've joined us, just particularly for this series, we are doing a series called Reconstructing Faith. The big overarching idea uh, behind this series is really to look at what are the building blocks for Christian faith. Christianity has been around for, obviously, Uh, 2,000 years, and it constantly is being scrutinized. And so we want to create a space where this church, in particular, uh, where we can ask big questions, uh, that we don't um, look at someone who is exploring or someone maybe that is doubting as if they are somehow weird and unfaithful, because at the end of the day, we are all asking questions, and we all at different times have doubts and disillusionments around Christian faith and the experiences in which we've had. Uh, last week, we looked at just as an, as an intro, just into the different reasons that we doubt and the different reasons in which we experience uh, significant disillusion. Uh, I grew up in a home that was not Christian, then became Christian, in which I didn't want to be Christian, and then as a 19, 20-year-old came to faith myself, um, but I had lots of big doubts, I had lots of big questions, and particularly big questions around this book. Um, because, essentially, Christianity rises and falls on this book. If this book is false, if the stories about Jesus are not true, uh, then we have no hope. We have no one in which we can truly point to as being the saviour of the world. And as I asked big questions, as I read for a long time and tried to explore stuff, I have become convinced that this book is trustworthy, reliable, and in fact, it is what Christians believe, that it is somehow, some way, it is God's Word. That it is god speaking to his people through his people this book is unlike any other book whether you believe in god or not whether you consider the bible to be a bunch of made up stories you cannot deny that this book is different from every other book this book is the most read book in human history it is the most owned book in human history it is the most sold book in human history, and it is the most sold book every single year, even if J.K. Rowling brings out Harry Potter 17,000, uh, it's still going to sell more books than J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter 17,000. There's an estimated 6 trillion Bibles currently, physical Bibles, in the world. It is the most printed book, it is written in 1,300 different languages Yet it is also most despised book, the most denied book, the most dissected and debated book, the most outlawed book in history. Still to this day, this book is outlawed in 50 countries in the world because they will not allow it to be present in their nation. And if it is, it goes bad for people. Millions of people yet have died defending this book, translating this book, bringing this book into those nations in which it is exiled. There is something different about this book. That doesn't happen with other books, but this one. This book is written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years in a dozen different countries on three different continents in at least three different languages by people of all walks of life. It's written by farmers and kings, soldiers and shepherds, princes, priests, poets, prophets, historians, fishermen, tax collectors, scholars, businessmen, doctors... It's penned in caves, it's penned in ships, it's penned in homes, in deserts, and in prisons. This book covers history, sermons, letters, poems, songs. In fact, I was reading just this week that this is the the richest lyrical book in the world, that more songs have been written from this book than has ever in the history of the world. And... The only reason that you and I are using particular English words today is because this book was translated into the King James Version, of which we have now arrived with a diverse range of words and language, because this book was actually translated. There are love letters, there are geographical surveys, architectural specifications, travel diaries, population statistics, that's my favourite. Family trees, that's a close second. Such and such begot, such and such begot, such and such begot, such and such begot. Okay, we get it. A whole lot of people had a whole lot of kids, great. There are inventories, there's legal documents. But it's all pointing to this one person named Jesus. All of this is pointing to one person who would come and do something in history. And so this book is unlike any other. 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17 says this, it says, All Scripture, the Bible, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This idea of God breathed. Right now I am speaking to you, but the only reason that you can hear my voice is because of breath coming up over my vocal cords. That's, it's this sense in which it is divine It's not just people speaking. There is something that Christians would say. There's something unique about this book, which is more than just humans writing. It is divinely orchestrated, and it is God speaking, particularly through this book, to his people. So I want to give you a bunch of reasons today why you can trust this book. Uh, I'm going to come fast with lots of data, with lots of facts. Um, You can go fact check them and hashtag me later. Um, but I realized I'm not going to be able to answer every objection. Uh, I spent about 18 months to 24 months reading everything I could find on this before I really was convinced I could trust it. So I can't give you that in a 40-minute talk. So if you do have more questions, I would love for you to come and just grab me afterwards. Uh, I'll stick around as long as I need to uh, to try and explain things more or to try and give you some, uh, even if you've got specific objections, I'd love to hear those and see if we could talk through uh, how I would reason those uh, in this book. But if you get your seatbelts, back them on, strap them in. You ready to roll? Good. Four of you are ready. The rest of you, you can join the crash with me, okay? Uh, number one uh, that I reckon that this book is trustworthy is because it is historical, historically accurate. Now, it's important to note from the beginning to not only say what this book is, but also what it's not, okay? Shane, in a couple of weeks, is going to look at the fact that this is not a science, scientific textbook, Okay, so if you're going to this book trying to find, uh, basically, you know, real specific details around science, uh, you're not going to find that. This, this book is not necessarily a book that was intentionally written uh, to be like a, an historical textbook. But it is a historical book. This book is a bunch of, I guess, historical documents that are formulated and kind of collated over time, tracing a specific group of people called the Israelites, God's people, the Hebrews, and eventually gets to Peter, James, John, and all the disciples, and then follows the the movement of that church as they start to follow Jesus all the way through to the 1st and 2nd century. So it's not necessarily a historical textbook, but it is a book which is historical. Now, in this book, we have different types of language. There is literal, and there is figurative, and metaphorical. Right? So one of the hardest things about this book is to work out, Okay, if we're dealing with a poem, are we supposed to interpret that literally? Do we interpret Genesis 1 literally, Genesis 2 literally? Is there a literal flood? Is there a literal Jonah with a literal big fish? What do we take as literal? What do we take as metaphorical and figurative? And this is a wrestle that Christians are constantly having because the Bible tends to speak about reality in multiple ways because the people who wrote this book are literary geniuses. I keep reading this book and keep going, man, they're amazing how they write. And so we use figurative and metaphorical language all the time, don't we, to describe reality. Uh, Imagine if Luke hopped off the stage today and went, oh my gosh, I literally died up there. No, you didn't. That's a lie. (laughs) Liar. Not true. Um, we, We use all sorts of metaphorical language. When someone says... Um, when a, someone speaks about their spouse and says things like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. Uh, we don't go into like protective mode. Hey, bro, just let you know she's on her way. She may have weapons. Okay. Yet, if someone says to you something along the lines of, you know what? I hate my life. Sometimes I think about the fact that people would be better off without me here. We take that differently, right? The Bible is the same. The Bible speaks in different ways and different forms all the time. And the wrestle is what are we to take literal? What are we to take metaphorical? But the reality is the Bible is constantly speaking truths in different ways. When David says, The Lord is my shepherd, he doesn't mean that God is a literal shepherd with a literal staff who's kind of and that he's a literal sheep. Jesus comes along and says, I am the good shepherd. He's not saying that you and I are literally ah, sheep, is he? Right? No, he's not. It's a, it's a metaphor. It's language to describe a relationship. And so the Bible is constantly doing this. And so even when we look at books of the Bible, we are to try and wrestle with the sense in which what is literal, what is metaphorical. A difference between Protestants and Catholics is the fact that when we take communion, we do not believe it is the literal blood and body of Christ. Catholics believe that it is because Jesus said... This is my body. this is my blood. And even in first century, a whole bunch of people went, "We don't do vampire. We're out." Right? We're not drinking literal people's blood here." And then a whole bunch of disciples went, "No, no, no, we, we kind of get it. This is a metaphor. This is something that we do as a metaphorical, figurative sense of we are doing something partaking of something that's not literal, but it has meaning and it is true. Jesus' resurrection doesn't appear to be something that is supposed to be taken metaphorically. But literally, Paul says it all rises and falls, and whether that literally happened, not metaphorically happened. So, what do historians look for to determine accurate history? Let me give you a few things. One, first-hand eyewitness accounts. Hugely important. Uh, Who here is in, in college studying Okay, when you do a research paper or you're doing an essay or whatever, your, your lecturers, your teachers, they want you to use primary sources, not secondary sources. Okay, and you get, get better grades the more primary sources you use. In other words, such and such, I read his actual document which said this, now I'm going to use that, rather than I'm using old mate old, who quoted old mate, and I think this is what he said. Primary sources get better grades. Why? Because you're hearing it from the horse's mouth. The same with his history, right? It's like, are these first-hand eyewitness accounts, or are these second-hand? If you consider the gospels, the gospel account of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, eyewitness account. Jesus came to Matthew and called him himself. Mark, Peter, Jesus's like right-hand guy, is sitting right next to Mark, scribing it. Luke is sent from Rome as someone who's supposed to go and interview all the first-hand eyewitnesses. And so he spends months upon months basically interviewing 500 people, the account tells us. Five, so he's like, Jesus' mum, Mary Magdalene. He's interviewing all the people who are in the streets and watching all the things, and then he's recording it, and then he sends it back to Rome going, this is the account of all of the eyewitnesses. And then John, who is known as Jesus' beloved, is an eyewitness account. There are verifiable data points. This is hugely important. Can we, can we see that that city and that town exists? If you think about the book of Acts, uh, the book of Acts is written by Luke. He's a historian. He, he lists 54 cities, 39 countries, and 9 different islands, all which have now been verified as being literal places and towns. It's verifiable data points. We can go back to Malta. We can go back to these places and see these cities and as excavations keep happening, we keep seeing more and more examples. Over the past 2,000 years, certain geographical markets have come under significant scrutiny, only to later be confirmed. For example, Solomon in the Old Testament. Pretty key character. There was a lot of doubt as to whether Solomon actually existed in human history. One of the main reasons is because both Kings and Chronicles talks about the fact that he had thousands of horses and even had a city known as the Chariot City, which was just for the horses, just for the chariots, and just for the riders. And so a lot of historians thought, well, Greco-Roman sort of culture, all the way before that, it seems to be mostly camels, not, not a whole lot of horses, until an excavation occurs. You can go and read this. Uh, it's at Megiddo, or Tel Megiddo, where they discovered a chariot city connected to Solomon with thousands of stables built for horses. Hundreds of years later, they go, oops, we were wrong. There seems to be something there. The Hittite Empire. The Old Testament is the only ancient book that talks about the Hittites. So for a long time, it was believed that the Hittites were just made up. didn't exist. We have no other verifiable data. So a guy... He's a German professor and archaeologist by the name of Hugo Winkler. He discovered in the early 1900s that he found the capital city of the Hittite army and their nation. He found in this particular place, as he's doing these archaeological digs, in these ruined storage chambers, which are basically royal archives that have been destroyed by great fire, he found 10,000 hardened clay tablets which later they realized are tablets written by Hittites in Hittite language. In fact, one of the tablets, there is a treaty between the the Hittite king and the Egyptian pharaoh, Ramses II. Not only elevating the historicity of the Hittites, but also, again, the Egyptians. One of my favorites over the years, which was quite compelling, was in 2 Kings 18. There is a transaction between the king of Judah and uh, Hezekiah and the king of Assyria. His name is Sennacherib. In this record, in this book, it says that there were 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Archaeologists found an Assyrian record of the transaction which happened, but it says that there were 800 talents of silver rather than 300. So for a long time, ha ha, the Bible is historically incorrect, except a few hundred years later, archaeologists have since found that the standard of calculating gold was the same in Judea and the same in Assyria, but the standard of calculating silver was different. So they found this, um, this uh, inscription, which was kind of explaining how they uh, calculated different talents. And they were so different that it would take 800 talents to equal 300 Hebrew talents. The scriptures were written in Hebrew. This natural account was written in the The text kind of says same amount. You will see this over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. This book keeps stacking up to historical record. Another thing that they look for is what is known as the criteria of embarrassment. We said this last week, that there are stories in here that if you're trying to make up a tale to convince people of, you leave out. Okay, When I was trying to convince my wife to actually think about marrying this guy, um, I gave her everything of the best, and I left all the bad out. Then when she married me, all the bad started to filter in, and then I was like, you're stuck. you got a ring on it, it's done. You can't divorce me. Sorry, yes, that is the truth about me. Yes, that is the truth. I sleep like that. I smell like that. I do these things. Yes, I did. But when I'm trying to convince her to believe me and come this way, I give her everything that is the best. That's what all you young adults are currently doing. You're putting on your best look, your best smell, everything else, and then when you get married, you're kind of like, ha, ha. The biblical account keeps going, no, uh, the king of Israel did do that to that man, to that woman. Abraham, Moses, Noah, all the heroes. And when you get to the gospel accounts, one of the, one of the biggest things that you would never do in an ancient sort of culture, Greco-Roman culture, was to say that the people who found the empty tomb first, you would never put this in an account, was females. Now, in our culture, uh, we, we probably don't have the same experience. We don't hold up a man's testimony against a woman's testimony as being unequal. In a first century Greco-Roman context, that wasn't the way it was. Just so you know some things about their context, in this context, first century, women couldn't get educated. You weren't allowed to. Women uh, basically weren't allowed to go and get jobs. Okay, It's quite different today. Um, Ladies, just so you know, women in the first century of Greco-Roman culture, weren't allowed to drink wine. There was lots of things that women couldn't do, and one of the things that women couldn't do was give eyewitness testimony accounts in court. So even if you had two, three, four, five women who said, we saw this, such and such did that, it would be dismissed and not allowed in court. You could have one dude. Shall we not go back in history, ladies? (laughs) Yet... In this context and in this culture, the disciples go, No, the first people to actually authenticate that Jesus rose from the dead and went into an empty tomb were ladies. If you're trying to convince an entire culture of people who do not view female testimony as being reliable, you would never include it because it downplays your cause. It doesn't help your cause, but they're like, We can't lie. They were there. They're the first people that then go and tell the disciples. So there is all of these things throughout the Bible, which is constantly known as the criterion of embarrassment, that they don't neglect, they don't wipe out from the testimony because they believe it to be true. Number two, prophetic fulfillment. Another marker that sets this Bible aside from other ancient documents is its ability to predict the future. Let me run through some of these quickly. Ezekiel 30 predicts the destruction of Egypt. Nahum 1, the destruction of Nineveh. Isaiah 13, the destruction of Babylon. Hosea 13, the destruction of Samaria. Ezekiel 25, the destruction of Moab and Ammon. All being outside of biblical account verified in human history. There are prophecies about Jesus. The Bible has over 300 prophecies over a thousand year span, specifically talking about the Messiah who would come. It tells us where he would be born, when he'll be born, how he'll be born, when he'll die, the nature of his birth, and crucifixion hadn't even been made yet and invented yet. The whole point of the Bible is it's supposed to be leaving us these breadcrumbs to follow. Peter Stoner, interesting last name, uh, this scientist, uh, he's, he's a mathematical probability scientist, right? So he highlights this in his book called Science Speaks. He says this, says that, that the Old Testament contains more than 300 references to the Messiah of Israel that were precisely fulfilled by Jesus is astounding. If we take just eight of the Old Testament prophecies Christ fulfilled, we find that the probability of their coming to pass in one person is 10 to the power of 17, which in my language is a lot. He illustrates this by giving an example. He says, If we take 10 to the power of 17 silver dollars, lay them across the face of Texas, let's say New South Wales, just for our our context, they would cover the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars, stir the whole mass thoroughly, blindfold a man and tell him he must pick up one silver dollar. What were the chances of having him get the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have of writing these eight prophecies and having them come true in any one man. And yet Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies, not just eight. Now, some of these you can go back and go, yeah, I mean, they could rewrite it and go back in history. You can do some of those things, but when you put them all together, it's impossible. Number three, this is probably the one that actually got me the most, is manuscript evidence. This will come up on the screen. Here are a bunch of documents which our culture, um, our, our universities, our colleges, all affirm as being accurate historical documents, okay? You have Homer's Iliad. We currently have 643 copies, and the earliest has been copied 500 years from the original. Classed, historical, reliable. Tacitus, the Roman historian. He writes the Annals of the Imperial Rome, written around AD 116. We've got the first six books, which survive in one manuscript. We've got book 11 to 16. We don't have the middle, Okay. Uh, copied AD 50. Uh, the books 11 to 16 are dated the 11th century, so minimum is 700 year gap from original to copy. Classed as history. Julius Caesar, Gaelic Wars, we have 10 copies. The earliest, 1,000 years from the original. Directly Accurate. Aristotle, we have only five copies of any one volume, 14 centuries from the original. Plato, only 11 manuscripts. 1,300 years from the original. Uh, the first century Jewish historian, Josephus, called the Jewish War, he wrote. Uh, nine manuscripts copied 10th to 12th century, somewhere in there. Right? All of these, if you go to any college, any university, are regarded as reliable documentation. The Bible, the New Testament, just let's look at the New Testament. 5,300 copies in English. Another 10,000 copies in other languages of Syriac, Latin. Coptic. Well, that's 643 copies, 10 copies, 5 copies, 7 copies, 9 copies, 5,300. And these are all documented within the first three centuries. Additionally, outside of the Bible, there are 38,289 quotations from the New Testament by others, both early church fathers and Jewish historians, who wrote between the 2nd and 4th century, which means if we lost all of the New Testament manuscripts, we'd have everything still in other writings, except for 11 verses of the New Testament. It is incomparable, the difference of what we have with this book. Now, Bart Ehrman He's pretty popular right now. A few years ago, it was the Da Vinci Code. Now it's Bart Ehrman. Um, Every 10 years, 20 years, you're going to get another voice, another thing kind of coming against the book. How can we trust it? How can we trust it? One of Bart Ehrman's great uh, sort of objections is that, yeah, but it's a copy of 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 a copy. And so now we have a copy that's been copied, say, 100 times. And now we have this story. It's like Chinese whispers. Or let's say Australian whispers, because I think that could be deemed as racist these days. Australian whispers. Let's do that. And apologies if any of you have... Okay, let's move on. Dear Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Thank you for God's grace. Australian whispers. You tell a story, you tell a story, you tell a story, you tell a story, and then all of a sudden you get to the end and it's a different story. Well, if you study how even just a scribe would have to do their job, a scribe you had to study for 40 years. Now, when you and I have something that needs to be copied, what do we do? We have a photocopy machine. We open up the thing, we put the thing in, press the button, exact copy. Okay. Essentially, I don't know if you know this, they didn't have them back then. But what they had was, is incredibly, incredibly gifted and skilled people who studied for 40 years so that they were now allowed to scribe and copy a, a document from papyrus to papyrus, from papyrus to papyrus, and the way that they would do it was each papyrus had to look like exactly the same. So at the moment, this is my ESV version of the Bible. If I was to get my wife's or somebody else's, yours would have different size font. Every page would look exactly the same from page to page to page. because we, Some are really, really small. Some are really, really big. Okay, They weren't allowed to do that. So they had to have, in this column the exact amount of words, the exact amount of letters, and they would have to go the exact amount of columns in each one. So they knew the exact middle letter of every single papyrus that they would then have to go back and count and make sure the middle letter was E. If it's not, guess what you did? Fire, burn, redo. They had the amount of gap that had to be between each column. So they had a particular bit of string that they would use and needed to match. If it didn't, guess what? F- fire, start again. So what you see with these these scribes is they are constantly thinking through exactly how they can write this as accurately as they can. Not only that, but in 1947, we come to the ruins of ancient Qumran and we find this thing called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Dead Sea Scrolls are an amazing find. Uh, There's hundreds and hundreds of ancient scrolls uh, scrolls that they find, but essentially what they found in these Dead Sea Scrolls at this Qumran community was the entire Old Testament on papyrus. The only book that they didn't have was the book of Esther because it was the only book that was disputed whether it should be deemed as a book of the Lord because God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. So in some streams, and this is the Essenes, they would exclude Esther because they weren't completely convinced it was supposed to be in the canon. Some of these particular manuscripts that they have, like, say, for example, the book of Isaiah, the earliest copy of Isaiah they had was about 900 AD. So between 900 AD and now 1947, there's about a thousand-year gap between copies. So what they did was, is go, let's see how accurate the copies are that we're finding in this community in 1947. This three years before my dad was born. They come back with the book, and they just start to overlay them with all of the documents that we currently have. And they found that about two percent of errors were across these books of the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah, which was is one of the ones they didn't have super early copies of, if you take the, the the chapter Isaiah 53, which if you know your Bible is this messianic chapter, 116 verses, one spelling mistake. Such was the ability and nature to copy, then to copy, then to copy, to copy. We're finding this thing 2,000 years after Jesus. And it's not Jesus' story. This is the Old Testament. This is Noah, Moses, Abraham. Historians, Christian and non, were astounded at this find and the accuracy of this book. Another one is thematic unity. Part of my studies and reading, uh, I read through the Quran. The Qur'an is written by one person, Muhammad. One person, one vantage point, one viewpoint, one point in time in a couple of places because he moves around because he's in a caravan. The, the, the Analects of Confucius is written by Confucius. The Writings of Buddha is written by Buddha. So you expect if one person writes a book, it's going to be uniform, right? As we said in the intro, 40 people, 1,600 years, multiple countries, multiple settings, multiple languages. And yet it is continually pointing and coming together like this incredible, beautiful picture pointing to this person called Jesus. And you couldn't get a more diverse group of people. This is not elites. It's elites and it's poverty. It's farmers and fishermen, and scribes, and poets, its kings, its princes, and its ordinary men and women. Ed Sanders of Duke University, one of the leading figures in historical studies, he's he's a self-confessed agnostic. He talks about this. He says, there are no substantial doubts about the general course of Jesus's life, when and where he lived, approximately when and where he died, and the sort of thing that he did during his public activity. I shall first offer a list of statements about Jesus that meet two standards. One, they are almost beyond dispute. And two, they are belonging to the framework of his life, especially his public career. Jesus was born 4 BCE, near the time and death of Herod the Great. He spent his childhood and early adult years in Nazareth, a Galilean village. He was baptized by John the Baptist. He, was called, he called his disciples. He taught in towns, villages, and countries, uh, the countryside of Galilee. He preached the kingdom of God. About the year 30, he went to Jerusalem for Passover. He created a disturbance in the temple area. He had a final meal with his disciples. He was arrested and interrogated by Jewish authorities, specifically the high priest. He was executed on the order of the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate. We may add here a short list of equally secure facts about the aftermath of Jesus' life. His disciples fled. They saw him in what sense. We are not certain. In other words, they're not sure whether they can believe that he was really resurrected after his death. As a consequence, they believed that he would return to found the kingdom. They formed a community to await his return and sought to win others to faith in him as God's Messiah. The whole book is pointing to this moment in history. If you read the Old Testament, it's all pointing to Jesus. You get to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It's all about Jesus and then Acts all the way through to Revelation. It's all about the community of believers who follow this Jesus. This whole book has been thematically unified in such a way that it's hard to reconcile that God's hand is not upon it. If you, like me, are convinced that Jesus truly rose from the dead, number five, Jesus confirms the Bible. Jesus said in John five thirty-nine, you search the Scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life, but the Scriptures point to me. Luke twenty four twenty seven says, "...beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the Scripture concerning him." Luke twenty four forty four. "...then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms..." He's saying, everything that's been written about me in the whole Old Testament has been pointed to me. Jesus speaks of Adam. Jesus speaks of Abraham. Jesus speaks of Noah. Jesus speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus is constantly confirming the Old Testament as Scripture." And I don't know about how you roll, but I kind of roll with the guy who's able to predict his own death and predict that he will raise again and actually goes around spending 40 days with a whole bunch of people, about 500 different people, so that they can see that he truly is the resurrected Messiah. And all of those people are so convinced that they're willing to stand up in their Greco-Roman context and die for that belief. We know that all of the disciples that follow Jesus go and are crucified upside down. They're put in boiling pots of water. They are all murdered and killed because they will not denounce it. Why? Because they saw him with their eyes. They touched him with their hands. They spoke with him with their own mouths. And they spent time with him in their own homes. Jesus confirms the Bible. They confirm Jesus. And lastly transforming power of this book continues to amaze me. I've been a Christian for just over 20 years. This book has changed my life. It has changed lives in this room that I know of personally. I've been in ministry maybe 10 years. I've seen this book take people who have been married and both have been sexually unfaithful to one another, filled with sexual addiction, come and reconcile and be married anew and have turned their lives completely around. I've watched addicts. My father was an alcoholic. I've seen other addicts come and open up this book and it transform their lives. I've seen people without hope, I've seen people on the brink of suicide, have nothing else to turn to and open up the book and start reading it, and somehow life comes to their soul. I've seen people purposeless, people who don't know why they exist, people who don't believe they have any value or anything to offer, read this book and they're convinced, man, I have value, I have dignity and worth, because I now believe that God made me, that God loves me, that God purposed me. This book tells me that I am no accident, that you are no accident, that you are not random. This book tells me that you are loved even in your most unlovely state. This book tells me that you can be forgiven completely, washed clean of all guilt, all shame, just by reading the book that can fall off you. I've seen it. Because people meet this Jesus in this book and they go, man, he wipes people clean. And people who are filled with shame because of their past are able to walk free. People who have been hurt, offended, abused, become whole. This book tells me that there is hope. No matter how hopeless our world seems to be, this book is filled with hope. People who have nothing left, nothing to offer, open up the book and feel upheld, lifted and strengthened. People who feel alone when all of their friends, all of their family have abandoned them, they've opened up the book and gone, God is with me. One of the greatest testimonies to me is I've seen people read Harry Potter. And I've never seen them come out and go, I'm a different person. I've seen people read books. Uh, I've read good books like C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. You read this book, just give it Give it a year. Just sit in the book and just read it every single day. You'll be different. And the only thing that I can put my finger on as to why people can read any good book, any helpful book, you know, it could be a purpose-driven life book that's, you know, it's helpful. It's not, it's not necessarily a bad book. It's a good book. It's about God. It's got stuff in there. Right, these, these are not bad things. This is the only book I've seen transform people. And the only reason I can give to that is because these are God's words and i want to encourage you no matter where you are no matter what you believe if you're not a christian explore it come with us join us on a journey explore it if you are a christian but you're not in it get back in it just get back to reading little bits here and there every single day and you watch joy comes back into your heart hope comes back into your heart peace comes back into your heart why because there's something about this book It is the only book that you can read and open up and right next to you is the very author himself reading it with you and talking to you. It is powerful. It is transforming. And I want to encourage you to open it with me. And if you don't have one, we've got some here. We'd love to give it to you. As the band come up, let us pray and let us sing back to our great God for his great words. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others